Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Solis Podcast. Today, man, is such a special interview. I'll have former Atlanta mayor, congressman, and UN ambassador Andy Young. But before we get to him, I wanted to talk about y'all's good friend and senator from the great state of Texas, Ted Cruz. In case you missed it, as Texans have been fighting to find fresh water and have their power restored, their senator thought it was a good idea to go on vacation in Cancun. And after being called out for abandoning his constituents in the midst of an energy crisis, he found the time to get back on his job, but only after being embarrassed. And though he originally lied about when he'd be back from his trip and seemed to initially blame his daughters for the trip, which was weird, he eventually came around to admitting that it was all a mistake and a major lapse in judgment from him. I won't say much more about his poor judgment because it's obvious, but I do want to talk about what we're seeing in Texas and what we saw from Senator Cruz are both symptoms of a much bigger problem in Texas and in states like Texas that have been subject to one party rule by Republicans for decades now. Even as Texas saw historic blackouts, we saw their governor, Greg Abbott, blaming renewable energy, for example, for the blackouts as opposed to the more obvious culprit of the state's energy policy that left its energy grid vulnerable to massive blackouts, i.e. not weatherizing the grid. And that's because Texas has decided to keep their grid independent of the rest of the country so they wouldn't have to or couldn't have to ask for help if they needed it, even in emergencies like this. And that's a policy decision that led to this and not simply an issue of bad weather. And instead of being honest with folks that they have a grid with various sources of energy, both fossil fuel based and powered by renewable energy, that were all poorly prepared for an extreme weather event, there's been a lot of finger pointing and politicized talking points from elected officials like Texas Governor Greg Abbott. But when you're in a state like Texas, whose electorate doesn't hold Republicans accountable for being really, really bad at their jobs, you get Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz. Texas has an opportunity, or they at least they did have an opportunity, to fire Ted Cruz. And despite having some of the worst approval ratings of any senator and being the most disliked person in the Senate with no real record of doing anything for Texas, in the Senate, Cruz was reelected just a few years ago. Abbott will similarly stumble his way through leading Texas out of this crisis, knowing full well that the R next to his name will be enough for many Texans. Politicians who know they run the risk of losing don't do what Texas Republicans are doing now. And I hope we get a Democratic challenger to Abbott in 2022 that we can all rally behind. I know they'll have my support. And I hope that this crisis has Texas not only looking for a more reliable grid, but leadership that can actually do their jobs. And that's that on that. Now on to the conversation with one of my heroes, Ambassador Andy Young. Well, look, I want to welcome you to my show. It's called the Bakari Sellers Podcast, Ambassador Young. And during Black History Month, we've been having some amazing people on. One of my uh, final guests this month and probably towards the beginning of next month is going to be Judy Richardson. Uh, but we have a lot of the heroes of the movement that you know who I just want to have an opportunity to share their stories. But I want to start with you by just walk us through the arc of your career. Talk to us about why you decided to pivot from your work with SCLC to running for Congress? Well, the, the last meeting I had with Martin Luther King was in New York the night before he went to Memphis. And it was with uh, Harry Belafonte and Dick Hatcher from Gary and John Conyers from Detroit. And the whole subject of the conversation was, how do you take the energy of the movement 
and put it into politics. He said, we ought not have to organize demonstrations every time we need somebody to vote for something for us. <laughs> and that's so, how you ended up running for Congress? Well, uh, no, I ended up, I was left in charge of SCLC almost. And I was looking for somebody. I was, I was, I was hoping we could get Hosea to run down in Savannah and we could get uh, somebody to run in the black belt of Alabama. And uh, there were a number of people interested in Mississippi, but Atlanta, uh, Julian thought about it, but you know, it was kind of dangerous. So Julian, you know, his family didn't want him to run. And uh, Vernon Jordan took the job with the urban league and uh, I was sitting there in Harry Belafonte's office and he, he called, turned around and talked to his wife and said, look, we, we need to get a fundraiser together. And she said, why? And he said, and is running for Congress. I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so a- ambassador young, talk to me about your relationship with president Carter and how you ended up being us ambassador to the United nations. Well, you know, I, when I was running for Congress, he was running for governor. And uh, the first time, 1970, he got elected and I didn't. Mm. And I ran and got elected in 1972. But um, that, put us, that put us in contact with each other quite a bit. And I liked him. And I, I, I got along. I mean, I, I met his mother. And, you know, a Southern white woman who goes to India for the Peace School when she's 66, you know, you, you got to pay attention to her. And, and I, I had a false start with him because I said the only, he was from Sumter County, Georgia. And I said, the only thing I know about Sumter County is, is Sheriff Jim Chapel. He said, oh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Well, Martin Luther King had said that Jim Chapel is the meanest man in the world <laughs> because in the Albany demonstrations, they were put in jail, not in Albany, but up in uh, Americas. And uh, it was, you know, warm day and the temperature dropped that night and uh, everybody was hot and sweaty. And suddenly the temperature was almost down in the thirties. And we tried to bring some blankets in there. And he said, you should have thought about that before you broke the law. <laughs> and <laughs> instead of letting us bring blankets, he turned on the fan and pulled the coal air in. Uh, and Martin said that he's the meanest man in the world. So Jimmy Carter and I didn't start off very well, but I got along very well with his mother and his son, Chip. Mm. And, um, and gradually, I learned to work with him. And when he, well, he did things, you know, that uh, you don't expect the Southern governors. He uh, deputized every high school principal so that nobody could graduate from high school in Georgia without being a registered voter. <laughs> See? Uh, and um, he did it with no fanfare. Nobody pushed him to do it. There were a number of SCLC people who were on his on his staff, and he brought them into government. Uh, and uh, well, I wanted to stay in the Congress mm-hmm. because I thought he needed help in the Congress. 
But he said, if we're going to have any impact on human rights, I need you at the UN. And I said, well, Barbara Jordan would be a much better UN ambassador than I would. And he said, she's probably better than you in almost every respect. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, what's that? He said, she was not with Martin Luther King. Mm. And you were. And when you leave these shores, we can't afford to talk about human rights based on our background. But uh, you Mm. can get away with it because you were with Dr. King. And that's why I need you at the UN. And I told him that um, I was very much interested in Africa and I would want to concentrate on Africa and the Caribbean, though I'd do anything anywhere. And he said, no, that's what I want. And he had decided that uh, the U.S. could never defeat the communists in Asia. Uh, And it was always questionable in the Middle East, but that he was, well, he he was a Baptist who had, well, when he met Obasanjo, the president of Nigeria, uh, he said, my first experience with Nigeria was when I raised, I I had a car wash, our church had a car wash to send books to a little missionary school in Nigeria. Uh, And when Obasanjo got up, he said, Mr. President, I was a barefoot boy that walked three miles every day to get to that school. Uh, And uh, I want to thank you, you know, for helping us get on our feet. And I look forward to working with you on anything you want to do in Africa. Well, uh, Nigeria runs Africa in many ways. Nobody wants to admit it, but they find a way to to have more influence Mm -hmm. uh, than any other country. And so with him behind, and he kind of liked me, (laughs) Um, because by that time, I had, you know, I had decided that uh, if they asked me a question, I was going to tell them the truth. And I I had said (laughs) to President Carter, I said, look, I'm not going to have the state. I'm not going to follow the State Department line. And I said, if I have to choose between something that Dr. King said and something that the State Department says, I'm going to be always, you know, be true to what Martin Luther King gave his life for. And he said, that's what I want you to do. So there had been a number of things that, you know, they asked me as soon as I got there, what do you think of the Cubans? I said, well, the Cubans did a good job in Angola. <laughs> in fact, they defended American oil industry there. Uh-huh. I said, they're not doing such a good job in Ethiopia. And I said, they probably ought not be there, but the Cubans are a very positive force in Angola. Mm. And, well, that didn't go over well with the press. I can uh, imagine. But they were saying Mark, uh, Robert Mugabe, and they, well, even Nelson Mandela back then was a terrorist. Yeah. And I would correct them and say freedom fighter. <laughs> oh, that you were right. That kept me in trouble in the U.S., but it gave me more stock around the world than, 
you know, than than I deserve probably. Because I would I would not um, bite my tongue on the truth. And you still don't. I we know that to be a fact. Well, I try. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. There's a picture, and we're going to post it, and uh, and it's a video clip of you that has Reverend Joseph Lowry, Reverend C.T. Vivian, Congressman John Lewis, and baseball legend Hank Aaron. All four of the other men pictured have now transitioned. But talk about what each of these men meant to black America, the state of Georgia, and probably most importantly, the city of Atlanta. Well, all five of us at, from different presidents received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And uh, each one had a unique role. Joe Lowry was the oldest. uh, And Joe was one of the founders of SCLC and was a Methodist minister down in Mobile. And he led the bus boycott in Mobile when Martin was leading the bus boycott in Montgomery. Uh, So he'd been around a long time. And the Methodist church, he was important because we we couldn't let the movement become a Baptist movement. And he was a prominent Methodist, and he brought a lot of Methodist churches along. Uh, I was a member of the Congregational Church, and um, that ecumenical diversity uh, was necessary for the movement. Uh, C.T. Vivian uh, started sit-ins in Peoria, Illinois, in 1947. Oh, my goodness. See, uh, that never gets any publicity, but there was a, it was under CORE, Mm -hmm. uh, and CORE in Illinois and Ohio, uh, Jim Lawson, who ended up, you know, moving to Nashville with CT, and they sort of trained John Lewis and Bevel and, the Nashville sit-in store movement, because Jim had been to jail uh, for being a conscientious objector to the Korean War and had um, spent some of his time in jail, but then they sent him to India as a Methodist missionary. So he had uh, he had studied Gandhi from Gandhians. Uh, and so C.T. and... Jim Lawson really sort of were responsible for uh, John Lewis, mm-hmm. but also Bernard Lafayette and James Bevel and uh, Marion Barry. All of them came out of the Nashville movement, Diane Nash. So I guess I'm the only one left, and I've, I've, I've been hanging around the movement and – I wasn't trying to be the leader. <laughs> That's the reason your daddy and I got along so well. <laughs> that somebody had to stay in the background and stay cool yeah. uh, and think things through and make things happen. Uh, and uh, the less you were seen on the camera, the better. Uh, and so I, I started, you know, down in the country. I ran my first voter registration drive in Thomasville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. In 1956. <laughs> and I, I'll let you know another little interesting thing about that was all the Georgians told me we got to vote for Eisenhower down here. And I said, well, I'm for Stevenson. And he said, you can be for Stevenson up north. <laughs> uh, but down here, 
if Eisenhower is elected, there are no but white Republicans. And we get to name the federal, nominate the federal judges. See? Mm-hmm. And so that made sense to me. And I didn't know it was going to happen. But when Eisenhower won, just about every judge that we faced in the 60s and 70s that helped us was an Eisenhower appointee that had been nominated by the black and tan Republican Party. So, which was was still in charge of the South until the Kennedys came in. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Uh, speaking about you being in the background, you didn't want to be mayor of Atlanta. But you, how were you convinced to run for mayor after you left the United Nations? Well, a lady by the name of Miss Susie Laborde was president of the Senior Citizen Organization. And she was about 80 years old. And we were in a meeting discussing it. And, and uh, everybody, I convinced everybody that I was not interested in being mayor. Well, I had four kids. The mayor's salary was $50,000 a year. I had one in law school, one in engineering school, and one about to go to Duke. And I said, I can't, I, I, I can't send my kids to college. And I said, I, we didn't make any money. didn't have any retirement or any insurance or anything in the, in the, in the movement. But Ms. Laborde came in and she shook her stick in my face and said, look here, boy. <laughs> she said, when you came here, you were nothing. And we done made something out of you. We done sent you to Washington and all around the world. And now we need you to be the mayor of Atlanta and you ain't got time for us. She said, well, we done wasted our time on you. <laughs> and she turned around and walked out of the meeting and slammed the door. Well, you can't say no to people like that. That's true. But it's the best thing I ever did because my international background was perfect for Atlanta in the 80s. There was no money in Washington. Say we were in a recession, but I knew about money all over the world. And so we began to bring in money from Europe and Asia and finance the airport on Wall Street. And we developed a new way of, well, Atlanta, Atlanta doesn't run like most cities. Uh, mm-hmm. We use very little taxpayer money. We go to Wall Street. And the airport, for instance, um, I don't know how much it cost us, but we didn't care because we could go to Wall Street and get whatever we needed. It could be 50 million, 100 million, 500 million, but it's probably five or six billion dollars into the airport, maybe more. But it generates a million jobs. Fifty mm-hmm. percent of those jobs and the, own, the businesses owned there are owned by minorities, uh, and it's the largest economic engine, certainly in the South, maybe in the nation. And uh, just before the virus, we had a hundred and ten million passengers a year. Uh, come through there. And uh, it was something, well, we were larger than Beijing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it 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 serves our needs and it pays for itself. Yeah. And it pays for the city too. Yeah. Let me ask you this, as a pivotal figure in the civil rights movement, when you see what we saw this past summer 
with protests in response to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Are you at all surprised by how enduring white supremacy has been in this country? No, I'm not. But I was really pleased at the awakening of black and white people in the Black Lives Matter movement. But George Floyd's death particularly, if you're human at all, you could not watch that man die for nothing without having an emotional reaction. And his death, well, Dr. King and SCLC talked about redeeming the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. Mm -hmm. Well, he was killed when he started raising the question of poverty. Uh, But George Floyd's death brought us back to that point because I think even though we didn't have a formal list of demands and some of the things that we said, I really don't think, you know, they were misinterpreted and misunderstood and were counterproductive, but never in the history of humankind has the whole world reacted to something so quickly. I mean, all the way down in in, uh, New Zealand, Black people were marching for Black Lives Matter. <laughs> uh, and you got and you got black people all down there, too. Staying on this topic, Ambassador of White Supremacy, what ran across your mind when you saw the insurrection at the Capitol last month? That this is serious and that um, that this was an attempted coup. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really came there thinking that they could take over the United States government in spite of the election. And I, I think that, um, well, the first thing I started thinking of, I don't know a single march that SCLC had anything to do with or that anybody else in the black civil rights movement had anything to do with that deliberately killed people. Now, there may have been some policemen that might have been killed in a movement or in a riot after a movement, but nothing during any of our demonstrations. And this was not a nonviolent demonstration. This was a violent attempt to take over the United States government. Uh, And I think that uh, it has set in motion, I'm not sure what, I'm not too worried about uh, the fact that we could not impeach Donald Trump. In fact, I don't know whether you, you remember, but I learned one of the first lessons I learned in the civil rights movement was you never call your opponent's name. Mm. And I never called my opponent's name in any of the races I ran in politics. Because when you call your opponent's name, you rally his supporters. Mm-hmm. And when that fellow was running for the first time with 15 other Republicans, I said, you need to focus on each other and leave him out of this because you all are making him more important than he is. Uh, and he's a master at uh, manipulation of in- insecurities. Yes. And... Um, they played him cheap, but well, I, I'll leave him to the Lord. 
that's a that's a that's a good way to to put it. Let's talk about Georgia. Right? Before I let you go, let me let me let's talk about Georgia for a minute. You've got two new Democratic senators. The state went blue for President Biden for the first time since 1992. I mean, we know how important Atlanta is to the state of Georgia with its educational institutions and its economy. We talked about that earlier with the airport. But how did Georgia turn this go around? Tell me what was special well, between no, Chatham. Georgia's, Georgia's been different. We just haven't paid any attention to Georgia. See, we carried Georgia for Clinton. And the only thing, only thing was that we had a, a rally out at uh, DeKalb County Stadium and had 25,000 people there. And his staff didn't want him to come. And the only reason he came was that Hank Aaron was one of the sponsors and he was a great baseball fan. And so he always, he came to that meeting the Saturday before the election. and. That probably got out a couple of, you know, 10, 15,000 votes uh, just to have that him present there. Nobody else has done that. Obama raised a lot of money in Georgia, but he never made an appearance as a candidate. So uh, Jimmy Carter carried Georgia. We could have carried Georgia any of the previous years because we've been working. I mean, we had an all citizens registration committee that I was working with in the fifties, 56. And it had been going before that. We had the Primus King case in 1948 that ended the democratic white primary. And so Thurgood Marshall and the Masonic Lodge, uh, Prince Hall Masons uh, took on that case. So the Masons have been organized in statewide the AME Church, you cannot be a member of the AME Church unless you're a registered voter. When we get together on something, see? now what the there were two differences. One was that Stacey Abrams had money mm -hmm. and also technology that's new. We've never had either of those before. But there's another thing that's maybe as important as that that we've got to remember. Gwinnett County, which is just north of Atlanta, used to be, when I was mayor in the 80s, all white. It's now all American. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a black sheriff up there, I think. Mm -hmm. The congressperson is a white woman, but a very moderate to liberal professor from Georgia State University. Uh, which right now graduates more black students than any school in the world uh, on any given year. They got 1,200 graduates uh, that happen to be black. The Gwinnett College is now, oh, maybe 30,000 people. Mm. And it's black, it's brown, uh, it's Asian. I mean, we have Koreans, Ethiopians, uh, Indian community is strong up there. And all of those ethnic groups uh, got together uh, behind Warnock and Ossoff. And I think the fact that it was a black and Jewish coalition <laughs> yeah. uh, was sort of poetic justice. And I think they, but the, the interesting thing was, I think, 
Warnock got more Jewish votes than Ossoff did. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting point. Hey, let me ask you this question about Georgia. Can Stacey Abrams be the first black female governor uh, in the history of the United States? Well, you know, we think that Stacey Abrams won the governor's race before. I agree with you. And so there's no question that she will be probably the front runner and will have the united support. Uh, but the Republicans did pretty good in standing up to the election fixings. <laughs> you know, of the last administration. Yes, yes. But the state legislature is doing some funny things that I haven't had a chance to keep up with. And well, so, they're trying to keep they're trying to keep us from voting. That's what they're trying to do. Well, and but and they're doing it in a lot of sneaky, skillful ways. I think that we'll have enough. Um, it'll be a horse race because. The Democrats have to win it. They have to keep Warnock's seat. So that means to, to keep control of the Senate. Correct. And so Warnock, Stacey Abrams elected Warnock. Warnock now will, will help <laughs> bring the money and get out the vote and hopefully elect Stacey Abrams. So my last question for you is I want to talk about the future of black politics. we got a black woman vice president. The CBC is as large as it's ever been. We've got three black men in the Senate and a black woman governor in the deep south on the horizon in 2022. But we've also got a black electorate, particularly younger black voters that are far more progressive than the current elected class of black politicians. How do you see the future of black politics shaking out? Well, I don't think black politics will be as relevant as we think now. Black politics is only important if you win. And I think that um, I remind myself all the time that we're still just 13% of the population of this nation. And so we've got to build coalitions, but most important, I think, is that we've got to find a way to integrate the money. Mm -hmm. There was one of the, there was a Citicorp study that said discrimination alone had cost the U.S. economy sixteen and a half trillion dollars, and the total of the U.S. economy is only nineteen trillion a year. Uh, so that's almost a trillion a year that was simply the result of not being fair. Mm -hmm. So. I think that black politics has got to focus on global economics. We've got to find a way to integrate the money. And it's not just a few rich white folks putting money into a few black campaigns that they can take out. It's how do we restructure this economy so that the people we have now, that we used to call poor people, we now realize are essential workers. Well, they're all colors, but they are the hope of the future and they're mostly black and brown, but not totally. And it's not just being the mayor. You see, 
I was the mayor, and the mayor made $50,000 a year. See? I was the chairman of the Olympic Committee, a co-chair, and we raised $2.5 billion privately. And black folk, I could see to it that black folk got 41% of all of that money. Uh, but I couldn't get any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm much more excited about the young people. Well, the two young ladies that uh, the slutty vegans. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that restaurant. Here, here in Atlanta, you know. Yeah. Uh, or a young man who, uh, you know, came up on Maynard and me, Mac Wilburn, who probably he probably has contributed 15 to 20% of all the money he made to helping people get elected. I mean, he's a businessman that has always helped to fund the politics of Georgia and the nation. That we had the first, we had a, a fundraiser at his house for Joe Biden before it was popular. <laughs> uh, and, uh, We've been running campaigns with uh, Kamala Harris, and she ran for district attorney of San Francisco. Yeah. And I think the, the, the economic infrastructure of black politics is what's going to make sure that we get the benefit of a growing and thriving economy. Let me let me ask you one question before I let you go. I just can't let you go without asking you this. Tell me what happened from your perch and your perspective in the John Lewis Julian Bond race for Congress. I write about it a little bit in my book, but that's just from well, what I just let me tell you what happened. Okay. Yeah. All right. But this is the last question I got. I, I on the way out, you got to tell this story. Both of them were good friends of mine. Mhm. I I mean Julian's sister worked with me and I, I actually I had known Julian, since his, I mean, I lived across the street from Dillard when his daddy was the dean. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we go way back. Uh, but, and this is unfortunate, but it's, it's true. Maynard Jackson told me that there was a banker that I needed to meet. And I won't call his name, but I, I went to meet him. I was there at six o'clock in the morning, five quarter to six, because he got there at six o'clock in the morning. And um, we talked for about an hour. He supported me for Congress and as mayor. And when we got through, he said, um, I need to do, a need you to do me a favor. <laughs> and I said, oh, Lord, what's this white man going to ask me to do now? <laughs> Maynard didn't set me up to sell my soul. <laughs> And he said, everywhere I go, people think I run this town. He said, and they asked me, what's Julian Bond like? And I, it's embarrassing to me to have to say, I don't know him. I've never met him. He said, could you introduce me to Julian Bond? See? Hmm. And I said, sure. And I, I called Julian and I said, when are you going to be in town? I need to run you down to the bank and we just have a cup of coffee, but he just wants to meet you. And Julian said, I'm not interested in that. See? Now, when you look at the boats, Julian got 80% of the black vote. Mm -hmm. But John got 80% of the white vote. 
Mm-hmm. And there are more white people than there are black people in the 5th Congressional District. But the other thing that John did was, from the movement days, John remembered that Schwerner and Goodman were young Jewish boys, you know, that came down and died with us. And John, John was, whenever there was something, tension between the black and Jewish community, John stepped up. And he actually created a black Jewish committee that has been working together. And that group, if any one group, was responsible for Warnock and uh, Ossoff getting elected. It was that group that John put together 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And John was just a better organizer. He wasn't the speaker that Julian was, and he didn't have the outgoing personality, but he was more memorable because of the simplicity mm-hmm. and honesty and integrity and humility that he stood for. White folks are scared of black folks that are too flashy. <laughs> Understood. Understood. Well, Ambassador Young, I'm glad to have you on and spend some time with you. It's always a pleasure when I get to hang out with you. My my son is now up from his nap, so the time is perfect. I have a I named my son Stokely um, after Stokely Carmichael, so he has a lot to live up to. But I'm always thankful for you and your friendship to my family. And if there's well, ever anything really, I can do for you, he really doesn't have a lot to live up to. I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fan. Because my da- he his daddy didn't tell him what my daddy told me. What was that? I, I grew up 50 yards from the Nazi party headquarters in New Orleans. And when I was four years old, my daddy said, white supremacy is a sickness. You don't let sick people get you upset. Yeah. And his motto and mantra for me from three years or four years old on was, don't get mad, get smart. Hmm. And Stokely and a lot of the people of that era and, and, and of this era, they somehow think being angry is militant. That is absolute baloney. Being calm and cool and calculating is militant. And mm-hmm. so tell him every time you get a chance, when he cries and gets mad with somebody, tell him, hush boy. Don't get mad. Get smart. I'm going to tell him that. When you you lose your temper in a fight, you're going to lose the fight because the blood rushes from your head and you stop thinking clearly. Your mind is the most valuable and powerful weapon you have. Now, you and your daddy practice that. (laughs) Make sure he understands that. (laughs) I got you. Thank you so much, Ambassador Young. Much love to you and yours. Have a great day. All right. God bless you. Before I let go, it's a great show today. And in the outro, I wanted to talk about what's going on with my good friend, Neera Tandon, and a Democratic senator you're going to hear a lot about in the coming years, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. See, Neera is a longtime stalwart of Democratic policymaking and politics, and she was rightly tapped by the Biden administration to lead the Office of Management and Budget 
One of the key policy roles in any administration, but especially now as the Biden administration is offering massive legislation proposals for COVID relief, our economic recovery, green jobs, immigration, and so many other big proposals that we're likely to see in the next few years that will have the Office of Management and Budgets imprint. So this is a big deal. This role is important and Nira is qualified. But according to Joe Manchin, She's been too mean in her tweets towards certain senators, and therefore he can't support her nomination. By denying Democrats a key vote where Republicans may not cross over to support her, this could kill Tandon's nomination. Now, obviously, we should call out that this is the same Joe Manchin who voted for to confirm Jeff Sessions, who even Coretta Scott King had things to say about as Trump's attorney general, and to confirm the problematic Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and for Bill Barr to be Trump's attorney general. After Jeff Sessions, he's also the same person standing in the way of D.C. statehood and raising the minimum wage and getting rid of the filibuster. He and Kristen Sinema are single-handedly standing between a robust Biden agenda coming out of Congress, including the appointment of a progressive like Nara Tandon to lead OMB in one that may fall short of the moment we're in. I support things like D.C. statehood for a myriad of reasons, but perhaps at the top of my list and likely why Manchin himself opposes D.C. statehood is because I'd likely have at least two more reliable Senate Democratic votes. So I'm not looking to people like Joe Manchin. I'm kind of over it. And him opposing Nera Tandon is yet further evidence that our Democratic leadership in Washington, as is currently constituted, continues to leave much to be desired and may not be up to meeting the moment we're in when we're being held hostage by people within our own party. And that's that on that. We'll see you next Thursday with another episode of the Bukhari Sellers Podcast.